And I want to read verses 1 through 8. This is the inerrant word of God. Acts 1, beginning at verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would anoint me and enable me to faithfully preach it in each one of us to uh, cherish your word and to live it out, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as many of you know, uh, I actually preached four sermons in Acts chapter 1 back in 2000, and I quit <laughs> because I got totally stumped when I read two Puritans, and uh, they came up with a different... Um, view of the baptism of the Spirit than I had been taught and that I uh, knew about. It wasn't the view that the Pentecostals hold to. It's another minority view amongst Reformed people. And then I found it wasn't just these Puritans. It was uh, Southern Presbyterian theologians that I love, like Dabney and Thornwell and Palmer, who argued rather persuasively for uh, this particular viewpoint. And in the intervening years, I've been kind of studying that on the sidelines in my spare time, and I finally come back to the traditional um, view of the baptism of the Spirit. But I do believe because both sides have failed to see that there was far more than baptism involved in Acts chapter 2, that all of the benefits of the Holy Spirit were poured out at that point as a historical manifestation. I think that's one of the reasons why there has been a stalemate. In a sense, both were wrong in leaving out some things, and uh, both of them were right. Now, we're going to be getting to that at a later time, but I am very, very eager to get back into this book for three reasons. First of all, I am convinced that Peter Hammond and Derek Carlson and others like them are absolutely right when they say this book is an essential training manual for Christians and the kind of radical culture-transforming Christianity that, say, a, a William Carey held to. And uh, I think it's very important that we understand uh, what it has to, to say. Now, it's true that the book of Acts has been hijacked by some extremists, uh, but we should not allow that fact to keep us from learning some of the valuable lessons that are uh, in this book. The second reason I've decided to start the series uh, right now in terms of timing is because uh, I'm going to be going on some mission trips. And uh, I want the congregation as a whole to understand some of the passions that are driving me to bring Reformation, not only in America, but in other places, if God so wills to use my weakness. And I admit freely, I am a weak vessel. I cannot achieve anything. 
but I'm convinced that God is calling me to do this, and I'm convinced that God is going to be using this congregation in various ways, and I'm convinced that God's going to be using Glenn, uh, Pastor Glenn and others, and I think uh, you're going to be uh, very uh, excited as you begin to see some of the lessons that come uh, out of this book. The third reason that I wanted to start the series is that I want to show some of the ways in which the third world church can teach us some lessons. Uh, I think most of you are convinced that uh, we're not, you know, the 20th century American church is no exemplar of Christianity, you know. And so what in the world are we doing exporting our Christianity to other countries? But one of the interesting things that um, a number of missionaries, say from China, who have worked for decades in the underground church have realized is that the strengths and the weaknesses of the Chinese church are almost the opposite, the inverse of the strengths and the weaknesses of the American church. And so there are areas where we are strong, where we can benefit them, and there are things that they can benefit us. And I think the book of Acts beautifully illustrates both of those strengths and those weaknesses. And I want us uh, to grow because there's some areas where I think we need some fire lit under our seats, you know, to get us uh, to get us moving. And I'm not going to be repeating the information that I gave in the year 2000. I think those were good sermons and they're all fine, but I hate repeating myself. So if you want to look at that material, you're welcome to. But uh, I want to give some new lessons and I want to dive in straight at verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, I did point out last time that the former account was the Gospel of Luke. That's what Jesus began to do. But the word began implies that in the book of Acts, Jesus continued to do and to teach. How was he teaching? He was teaching through the prophets and through the apostles. And we're going to be seeing uh, later on in the book of Acts that the deposit that was given in the scriptures by the apostles is Christ teaching. Okay, And we're also going to be seeing that Christ continued to act. We ought not to think, as some people have a tendency to think, that Jesus, at his ascension, goes up to heaven and we just kind of forget about him. He's on vacation. And at the second coming, he's going to come back to do his real work, you know, then that's where his kingdom's going to be established. No, we need to realize that Jesus Christ has promised, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And when we are going out and discipling the nations, Jesus Christ is right there with us. In fact, if he did not give that promise, I will build my church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we might as well give up. Because there isn't a thing that we can build that Satan can't prevail against, right? And so uh, we really need to take seriously uh, his admonition, without me, you can do nothing. He continues both to do and to teach. He teaches through the scripture. He continues to do and, um, you know, to act uh, through his church. Uh, the second thing that I want you to notice is that doing and teaching belong together. Doing and teaching belong together. One of the things that's really frustrated Peter Hammond is that uh, there are so many Christians who want to teach, but they are not willing to be activists. They're not willing to go out there and to uh, do any work. You know, when they're amongst other Christians, great. You know, they're great Christians. They talk Christianity big time. But when they're in the business or when they're in entertainment, when they're in their family, they don't live like Christians. There is no impact of the Lord Jesus Christ or the Savior of Christ upon what they're doing. And so it's very important that we not be armchair theologians, that we 
have every square inch of our lives submitting to the doing and the teaching, the theology of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a third thing that I want you to notice is the order of those words. All that Jesus began both to do and teach. Frequently, doing precedes teaching when you are displaying your Christianity before the world. We're going to be seeing this all through the uh, book of Acts. Now, it's true, we ourselves cannot practice our Christianity until we know what the Christianity is, right? And so in our own practice, uh, we're going to see the exact reverse of this. We have to know our theology. We have to know our Christianity before we can practice it. But let me tell you something. Um, You need to be practicing your Christianity before the world is going to even give you a shake in giving giving to them your theology. Um, uh, That's the first thing that they see is the way you act. And I think many people are not going to be open to our Christianity unless they are blown away by the consistent Christian walk that they see in terms of our actions. Now, unfortunately, this is exactly the opposite of what so many Christians do when they try to be a witness at work. They make a nuisance of themselves with their words and their buttons and their bumper stickers, all the while being a terrible witness in the way in which they work. It's, it's kind of like the bumper sticker, you know, the honk if you love Jesus. But uh, the reason people are honking at them is they're being jerks on the road, right? It's not because uh, of uh, their real godly testimony. And it, it, it's a sad thing. You talk to any of the businessmen in this congregation, and they will probably tell you that some of the worst experiences they have had have been with Christians who have taken advantage of them. Now, what kind of a witness is that? What kind of a reception is the world going to give to that? Not a very good one, I don't think. And it's so sad. This um, speaks of Christians who talk before they do. And Paul grieves over this in Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. He describes this group of Christians as those who, he says, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. In other words, boy, they're eager to be out there and be a witness. They got bumper stickers galore. They got all kinds of ways to be an instructor of those fools out there, you know, that don't know about Christ. And then he proceeds to blast them, in effect saying, why in the world would anyone want to be a Christian with the kind of lifestyle you guys are leading? They're not going to listen to their words. They're going to be looking at what you are doing. He goes on to say, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? I've known of pastors who have stolen money from the offerings. I think of what a testimony that's going to make in the community. I have known of employees who have stolen time from their employers that they've contracted with. And I've known of employers who have not given to their employees what was promised due to them. Now, what kind of an impact and witness is that going to be? They're not going to get a very good reception to any words about Christianity that they might Uh, that they might give. Uh, Christians have been a stench in many a business with their obnoxious witness and their careless doing. Paul goes on to say in Romans 2, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You know what? One of the most common stumbling blocks that I've run across in Omaha when I have witnessed to pagans, they throw in my face the names. They know the names of pastors who have been caught in adultery. Just an amazing thing. You know, it's for one of the first things that hits the news. Or they'll point to, um, uh, you know, Christians who will justify, and you know, fellow employees who will justify their use of pornography. Um, 
Christians whose actions don't line up with their profession. And we're not talking about being perfect here. We're talking about being honest and letting people know that, yes, we've blown it and we hate it and God is saving us from our sins. And we hate our own sins more than we hate the sins of others. Well, Paul ends his long list of failures of Christians to do and to teach with these words. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we as a church are going to make any impact upon the culture that is around us, we have got to be a holy church. We have got to be a holy church. Let's make sure that we live our Christian walk before we talk it or we will blaspheme God's name. Now, I just know the way people's minds work. They um, will immediately say, well, I guess I won't do either then because I know my life isn't consistent. God commands us to talk, right? So he's saying, get your life lined up with it. And again, he's not saying be perfect, but he's saying be honest. Make sure that you are letting others know that your life is not perfect if it's not perfect and that you're working on it. And here are the steps that I'm taking and being honest that if we are preaching grace, that we are living grace ourselves, that we have gone to the cross of Christ with the sin that we have committed that everybody else knows about. We've been trying to hide, but everybody else knows about it anyway. And so let's make sure our walk lines up with our talk. It's doing and teaching. Now, we're going to be seeing later on in this book that one of the best witnesses that we can be is being the best employees and the best employers that the world has ever seen. 1 John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's the order. Deed, and then comes the truth, right? Uh, in fact, that's the way Christ did it. He demonstrated his Christianity, and that was the thing that attracted the crowds, and then he taught. He explained his Christianity. Um, 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Luke 24.19 says that Jesus was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. Psalm 119.68 says to God, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. I mean, it's seeing God's goodness and the way in which he acts that stirs up our hearts to say, Lord, I want you to teach me. So I really do think that there is a significance to the order doing and teaching. <clears throat> a fourth thing that I want you to notice about verse 1 is that it was written to a believer by the name of Theophilus, and even his name means lover of God or friend of God. So this book was not designed, it was not written to try to convert unbelievers. It was written to be a manual for believers and how to live out the kingdom in every area of life. And so just a brief note on that. It's intended for believers. A fifth lesson can be found in the phrase in verse 2, which says, after he threw the Spirit. Let me read the whole verse. Uh, <clears throat> the whole verse says, until the day in which he was taken up, after he threw the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, because I gave a fair bit of information on this in the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which I preached on recently, I'm not going to belabor this, but Christ, as the God-man, had all of the power to be able to do any miracle, any teaching, anything that he was doing, he had the power to do it through his divinity. And prior to his incarnation and after his ascension, uh, he had authority over the Spirit but as our example, he willingly submitted himself to the Spirit 
and he showed to us what it means to submit to the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to walk in the power of the Spirit. The book of Acts is going to be illustrating uh, how, to, uh, how to do that. I'm going to skip over most of verses 2 through 3 because I think I dealt with them adequately in the, the year 2000. But I do want you to notice the last phrase of verse 3. I think this captures the whole theme of the book. Let me read the whole verse. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And what's an infallible proof? Is there anything infallible that's not in the Word? <laughs> you know, he demonstrated his deity through the Word. A lot of people take that as something totally outside the Word. There isn't anything in life that's infallible except for the Word, but we'll move on. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, let me think about that for a moment. Why would Christ spend his last 40 days with his disciples speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God if the kingdom was going to be postponed? I mean, that's what I was taught in Bible school, that, um, uh, you know, we're not living in the time of the kingdom. In fact, we're living in the time of the great parentheses, that the kingdom was taken away from them, God just start, started something new, and the church age, they say, was utterly unanticipated in the Old Testament. And that doesn't make any sense to me, that Jesus would spend his last few precious days with them, all 40 days, talking about something utterly irrelevant to their life that's not going to happen for another 2,000 years. Doesn't make a lick of sense to me. No, the true interpretation was that Jesus was preparing them for the inauguration of the kingdom at Pentecost. The kingdom of God came with power at Pentecost and it has been growing nonstop ever since. Now, there is a sense in which the kingdom came even at Christ's birth because he was the king. He wasn't coronated yet, but he was the king, right? And he had the spirit of the kingdom that was upon him and he was doing the kind of miracles of the kingdom. And so there's a sense in which the kingdom came then. But, you know, the, the gospels don't usually speak that way. Let me give you some examples. The gospels begin with John the Baptist preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, verse 2. So it's not 2,000 years later. It's at hand, which means it's near. So it's not come yet, but it's close. The Greek means it's around the corner. Okay, it's, it's near. Now, in the next chapter, Matthew says Jesus had exactly the same message. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's around the corner. It has not come yet. But in Acts, we find Jesus for 40 days preparing his disciples by teaching about the kingdom. We see the very last verse of the, of the book of Acts, Paul preaching about the kingdom, it says. And in between, every chapter is advancing the kingdom of God over every area of life. You see, the book of Acts is a manual. It's a kingdom manual for how to live in the time of the kingdom. I think it's really important to understand that it's a kingdom manual. Now, dispensationalists disagree. Uh, now, they agree that the Old Testament was constantly anticipating the, uh, the, the kingdom, coming of the kingdom, but then they claim that once the Jews accept, uh, rejected Jesus, Jesus took away the promise of the kingdom and that the church age was started and it was utterly anticipated. And I want you to look at just at least two verses that contradict that. There's so many in here, but look at Acts 26, Acts 26 and verse 22. This is one of many verses indicating that the Old Testament was anticipating the coming of the kingdom. 
Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, here is the phrase, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Boy, that's comprehensive. He's saying there wasn't anything that happened in the book of Acts that wasn't anticipated in the Old Testament. There wasn't anything that Moses said that wasn't anticipated in the Old Testament. Let me give you one more. Uh, Acts uh, chapter 3 and verse 24. Now, the whole section is a marvelous kingdom uh, passage there. But look at verse 24. He says, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. He's saying this is exactly what the Old Testament was looking for. It was anticipating the glories of Pentecost and the age that that would usher in. This is a kingdom manual. And so what Acts is actually demonstrating is the truth of Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about the Messiah ascending to his throne, and Acts 2 refers to that, receiving a kingdom and sending forth his power. And then it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, what's so cool is he doesn't do it all by himself. He uses weak vessels like us, right? But it's his zeal that's accomplishing it. He gets all of the glory. And if it wasn't for his zeal and power, there is nothing that we could do. And so the book of Acts is showing how it is that God's zeal advances his kingdom through his people. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 and move on. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Let's just stop there. Why is it that they could not leave Jerusalem? Well, it's because the prophecies in the Old Testament constantly said that the kingdom was going to start in Jerusalem, was going to expand to the ends of the earth. And then there were prophecies in Ezekiel and some of the minor prophets that said the Holy Spirit would be poured out in the temple. And Ezekiel actually uses a very interesting language. It's that river. And it's very obviously a metaphorical river uh, because uh, it's a river that starts off as a little trickle that comes out of the temple, gets broader and broader. And Ezekiel walks along. He can wade in. It's up to his ankles and then up to his knees and up to his waist. And finally, it's so broad he can't swim over it. And finally, it's so broad it brings healing to the whole world. Okay, well, that's the spirit that's flowing out of that temple at Pentecost. And so they had to be in Jerusalem in order to fulfill that prophecy. Anyway, going on, um, he says, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. Ten days maybe wasn't the longest prayer meeting in the world uh, that it's ever had. But I wonder how many of you would be able to tarry in prayer and worship for 10 days. I'm sure they had bathroom breaks and, you know, they, they slept at night, but that's a long time, you know, 10 days to be waiting for the Spirit. And those were not wasted days. Without the Spirit's empowering, they would not have been able to accomplish anything in this world. Uh, we tend to be a very activist people. 
You know, we start off the day with devotions because we're going to feel guilty if we don't have it. But boy, it's a two-minute devotions, right? We want to get on with the real work of the day, you know. And so we're quickly going through the devotions and off to the real work. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, prayer is the real work of the church. And the things that flow from prayer, the things that we do throughout the day are either blessed by God or are not blessed by God. And we need to be asking that God bless the work of this day. It is so profoundly important that we should not start a day without prayer. We shouldn't end a day without prayer. Prayer needs to be the heartbeat of this church. And so that's one of the things that I want to emphasize. But there's another side to the equation. Some people are so uh, caught up in prayer and planning and planning and more planning, they never get around to doing, right? And so what we could say is, hey, guys, it was only 10 days, right? And then they got busy, okay? So both sides of the equation are important. Now, I spent a lot of time on verse 5, and we're going to be looking at the baptism of the Spirit anyway when we get to Acts 2. So you're not going to miss anything, even if you don't have the tapes of, of the previous sermons. That's, that's fine. But just keep in mind that what happens in Acts 2 is called a baptism in this verse. And the baptism of the Spirit is pictured by water baptism. And he says, John the Baptist prophesied of this coming spirit baptism. And by the way, this is a, this is a great way to uh, explain what the mode of baptism should be. Now, I was baptized by immersion. We accept all three modes, but I don't think that's the biblical mode, okay? We accept them, but uh, my baptism was a little bit subpar. Um, I think we need to ask the question, how did God baptize? I mean, he baptized, didn't he? He baptized with the Spirit. So how, what mode did God use? Well, consistently, you will find that God poured out His Spirit upon the people. In fact, in, in verse 8, it hints at it. Uh, it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? And so the action is with the Spirit. And so if water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism, then we ought to baptize by pouring. The reason we baptize by pouring is because it so beautifully illustrates not only the baptism of the Spirit, but it beautifully illustrates the fact that we are saved by grace and not by works. You know, when I was baptized by immersion, who is the guy doing all the moving? It's me, right? I'm going down, I'm coming up. And that's fine. We accept that because uh, we take people where they're at. But baptism by pouring... It's symbolizing the fact that the Spirit of God does everything. We're not saved by works. We are saved by grace. It's by His actual alone. And over and over again, you're going to be finding in the book of Acts that when people are baptized by the Spirit, it's the Spirit coming upon them, resting upon them, being poured out upon them, being shed forth upon them. It's always the movement of the Holy Spirit. So that's just uh, an extra that was thrown in there, by the way. Okay, where are we? Verse 5, is it? Verse 6. Okay, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there are many Reformed people who believe that the theology of that question is so, so bad. Calvin included. I rarely disagree with Calvin. Uh, Calvin said there are as many errors in that statement as there are words in that statement. Okay? Pretty strong, right? I, I totally disagree. After all, these disciples have just sat under the best teacher in the world for 40 days. And what's he been talking about? It's been talking about the kingdom of God, right? I think they knew a little bit about the kingdom of God. And Luke seems to think that they knew a little bit about the kingdom of God because he has that therefore. 
I think it was the perfectly natural conclusion when Jesus is saying that the spirit of the kingdom is going to be poured out in Jerusalem for them to conclude, oh, well, does that mean then that Israel is going to be restored at this time, that you're insisting we're going to be in Jerusalem? Very natural conclusion. Now, they knew it wasn't an automatic conclusion because they had already been taught by Christ that they were going to be persecuted by many people in Israel, right? And they were going to be uh, running from synagogue to synagogue. And so they're thinking to themselves, well, how long is this persecution going to happen? How long is it going to be before Israel is saved as a nation? In fact, I want you to look with me at um, uh, chapter 3 and verse 19. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, Repent therefore, this is to the Jews, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Um, You know, they're inspired at that point, but they still don't know when it is that those times of refreshing are going to come. Now, take a look back at uh, chapter 1 verse 6. The word therefore in chapter 1 verse 6 shows that Luke at least thinks that their question is a very reasonable natural question. There is coming a time when the natural branches, which were the Jews, that have been broken off of the olive tree, cast aside, are going to be grafted back into that olive tree. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is taken from you will be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. He's giving it to Gentile nations. Now, when is it going to be restored to Israel? In other words, when is Israel going to be saved is what their question uh, was all about. And so here comes the kicker. There, notice, uh, well, let me just give a little bit further support. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus does not deny that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. He just denies that it will happen right away. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Before Israel is saved, before the kingdom will envelop that nation, there are two things that have to happen. First of all, times and seasons must pass. Times indicates long spans. Seasons indicates those epoch-making events. But there's a long span of time that needs to happen. The second thing that needs to happen is in verse 8. And that is that the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. Now, we're not going to get into it much today, but in Romans chapter 11, it picks up on this outline of history of waiting for a long period for the fullness of Israel to come in. And Romans 11 says, before the fullness of Israel, fullness, by the way, means majority, okay? Before the majority of Israel will be saved, the majority of the Gentiles need to be saved is what he's going to say in Romans chapter 11. This is one of the reasons why missions is so critical. This is one of the reasons why nation discipling missions is so important. And then Romans 11 says that once Israel is saved as a nation, that event will be such an important event, it's going to usher in a whole series of things that will so profoundly change this world, it'll be almost like life from the dead. And that's what Acts 3 is referring to when it longs for the times of refreshing and calls those times, times of the restoration of all things. And we'll have more to say on that when we get to chapter 3. But there is one part of their question that is rebuked in um, verse 7. I think it's very important we look at it. The rebuke is that we must not inquire into things that the Father has not revealed. He said, it is not for you to know 
It is not for you to know. If the Father chooses not to give us information about the future or about any other thing, then it's folly for us to inquire. Now, here's what John Calvin said on this, and I think this is a very good comment. He said, Therefore, let us willingly remain enclosed within these bounds to which God has willed to confine us, and as it were, to pen up our minds that they may not, through their very freedom to wander, go astray. He is saying our minds are so undisciplined and we need to corral them just like you'd corral some sheep, you know, or corral in some horses. We need to corral in our thoughts so that they do not go beyond what is written. In fact, one of the verses that Pastor Glenn and I used to quote all the time in the uh, radio show that we used to have is 1 Corinthians 4, 6. says that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. That is such a great verse. This is what is written. And he said that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Uh, Derek Carlson, he's a, a, a missionary. Uh, he has some great things to say on this. I want to quote him at length. He said, The godly person seeks to know everything that the Lord has revealed, but he also doesn't want to go beyond what the Lord has revealed. God has revealed everything we need to know, and told us many things that we need to do. However, many people refuse to do what God has clearly told them to do, but still want to, quote-unquote, know more. If you cannot be faithful with the knowledge you have, why do you think you'll be faithful with more knowledge? Such curiosity arises when we are not doing what we should be doing, being idle, or if we don't trust the Lord, lack of faith. If we faithfully do what God has clearly told us to do, there will be no need, no time or desire to have many curious little questions answered. And I say a hearty amen. Amen. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, the extremists who have hijacked the book of Acts, they don't want to know about the law of God. They for sure don't want to do the law of God in the Old Testament. And they don't want to study the Bible many times because it takes too much effort. What they insist on is that the Spirit just reveal to them whatever it is that they need to do. And many times their revelations take more authority than the Bible itself has. Okay? And they're, they're, they're extremists. I uh, talked with one guy several times. He gets so upset with me when uh, I mention libraries. Uh, he doesn't like libraries. Uh, when I've mentioned that I you know, read a commentary or the theology book or something like that, he just gets irate and he says, no, we should only be taught by the Spirit. And I said, no, you, you're just not being consistent because I know you're teaching other people and all this is is a teacher who is using a book to teach other... What's the difference between this book teaching somebody else and your teaching? But he just gets irate and he says, no, it's just the Spirit. And he insists, only the Spirit we should depend upon. Well, that is absolute nonsense. I don't need to go on that further because I'm preaching to the choir, right? Uh, I think you guys all, uh, all believe that. Um, in our studies in Acts, we're going to be seeing that while the book of Acts does put some pretty hefty, high-powered cattle prods under us in our reformed apathy, and we need some of those cattle prods. It also uh, really hems in the opposite extreme of um, 
uh, people who want to go beyond the Scripture, and it instructs us that the apostolic deposit, and what I mean by that, is the revelation that God has willed to give to the apostles and the prophets of the first century has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. All that we need. It's given us, it's sufficient. It's all that we need for a life and godliness. And we're going to be seeing this uh, over and over again. In fact, the very word apostle, uh, its definition, if you look in the Greek, its definition, it's impossible to have apostolic succession because they need to be directly commissioned by Christ. They can't be commissioned, by this apostle commissioning this apostle who commissions the next one. No, they have to be directly commissioned by Christ. If you look at verse, uh, what verse is it? Verse 2 speaks of apostles whom he had chosen. Now, later in the chapter, in a different sermon, we're going to be seeing how the apostles themselves assumed there could be no apostles of Christ after the first century. They assume it's impossible to have apostles of Christ. And so that's a, a corrective to some of the things that are going on. Now, in the looser sense of the term apostle, there can be apostles, and there were apostles in Acts that were apostles of the church. I can have an apostle of Philip Kaiser. Uh, it's somebody who speaks in my name. The apostles of Christ, when they spoke, Christ spoke. You know, if I hire a lawyer to represent me before the IRS, what he says, I say. I mean, he stands in my stead, as it were. That's what the apostles did. And so when uh, Pastor Glenn and I are commissioned to go to Presbytery or go to General Assembly, in a sense, we're apostles of the church. We speak on behalf of the church. What we say, the church says. So, but in the full sense of the term, apostles of Christ, there are no more living apostles of, of Christ. And so that's something I think we need to, uh, that we need to uh, understand. Ephesians says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and the church is built upon them. You don't keep laying the foundation. Once the apostles and the prophets gave us the scriptures, we have everything that we need uh, to move on from there. Now, we're going to get into that in future sermons, but let's take seriously Christ's rebuke that it's not for us to know that which has not been revealed to the apostles. I think that's so important. It's not for us to know that which has not been revealed to the apostles. This Bible is our only infallible guide. Okay, there are just two more things I want to comment on in this passage. The first is that while we reject power religion, and by that I mean a religion that forces people to believe that we believe. We, we just utterly reject that. We cannot abide by that. We do not believe in a religion that is powerless. And the way some Reformed people talk about the book of Acts, you would think that they believe that Christianity is a powerless religion. Okay? It is not. Look at verse 8. But you shall receive power. He wants us to have power to the end of the age because he wants us to be witnesses to the end of the age. Now, it's not governmental power. We believe in small civil government. We believe in small church government. It's spiritual power. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And even the Spirit does not use governmental uh, power centers, you know, to impose His kingdom. Instead, very ironically, the Spirit has chosen to use things like the foolishness of preaching, to use people like us who feel so sinful and weak that we get discouraged and we wonder, man, could the Lord ever use somebody like me? Here, who is he talking to when he says, and you shall be witnesses to me? He's talking to despised Jews who were supposed to take over the world. He's talking to people that Jews despise, Galileans, to convert Jerusalemites. 
He's talking to bumbling Peter, and he's talking to, uh, you know, tax collector Matthew and um, James and John, who were the sons of thunder, because some commentaries believe they constantly lost their temper. But God tamed them, and God enabled them to be humble, and he used them to powerfully overcome this world and to draw people to Christ. Now, one of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says in there, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then he ends with these words. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Are you weak? Praise Jesus. You've got a power. You can depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you feel that people tease you and make fun of you and you're just base and despised? Praise Jesus. God delights in using precisely you. You don't have to be powerful. Only the Spirit has to be powerful. What you have to do is to be dependent entirely upon Him. That power of the Spirit was so profound that even though these lowly peasants uh, were despised, they were turning the world upside down. It does not matter that we are a small church. You know, in a, in a sense, they were a smaller church than we were, right? And uh, look at the way in which God powerfully worked through them. Um, it doesn't matter that I am weak as a pastor. What matters is, do we have the power of the Holy Spirit? During the time of Christ's earthly ministry, he said there were few that were being saved. Uh, there were lots of crowds that liked to be healed, but there were very few that were being saved, he said. And yet in the next chapter, he says, many will come from the east and the west. It's going to completely change. And so the book of Acts shows this great reversal. In the Old Testament, what you have is things going to worse to worse with occasional reversals. Occasionally things will get better, but the overall pattern was getting worse to worse until finally, here's Christ all alone, everybody forsaking him, just about everybody. And then after the cross and after the Pentecost, the mustard seed has been growing nonstop with only a few geographical reversals. But the cross and Pentecost are the time when all of that has been changed. And so what I want to do, I want to look at a few uh, indicators of this change from the Old Testament where there are few, there's a remnant into the New Testament, or there's multitudes. And so just follow along with me. Chapter 1, and we'll just be real, real brief on this. Chapter 1, verse 15. There's 120 in the upper room. Not very many Christians who have stuck with it. Then look at chapter 2, verse 41. And the last phrase there, it talks about, those, well, those who gladly received his word were baptized. That day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Then take a look over at chapter 4, verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed. There's the word many. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now take a look down at uh, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed. Then take a look at chapter 5 and verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Verse 16, also a multitude gathered. Uh, take a look at verse 28. Oh, I love this one. The, the Pharisees. Man, they're so upset. Uh, they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. 
Boy, it'd be cool if we could fill Omaha with the doctrines of grace. And then take a look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. And then verse 7. This ends the section number 1, which deals with the spread of the gospel through Jerusalem. He says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient uh, to the faith. Every section of Acts illustrates this phenomenal growth of the kingdom, just as Christ prophesied in the uh, growth of the kingdom parables, the leaven, the mustard seed, you know, the dragnet, all of the different things like that. So don't be expecting things to be getting worse and worse and worse. Sure, things have been getting worse here in, 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 in America, but they've been getting a whole lot better in other parts of the world, haven't they? He, he has promised in Isaiah that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's going to continually increase. And even the structure of the book shows that advance of the kingdom prophesied in Daniel. Uh, if you look at Acts 1 verse 8, it shows the... It shows the, um, the basic outline, but there's going to be a geographical and an ethnic spread. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Well, that's sort of the way that the uh, book of Acts has been uh, structured. And let me just quickly go through these sections and then we'll, we'll end the sermon this morning. This is designed to be kind of an introduction, to give you a flavor of what this book is uh, all about. And by the way, I've written the verses out. Every section ends with a summary statement that indicates the invincible spread of the kingdom, that it could not be stopped. Okay, section number one uh, is Jerusalem. We've already read verse seven where he says, as faith is spread, it's multiplied greatly. There's a great many. Section two, just as encouraging, the kingdom goes into Judea and Galilee, Samaria. Uh, Chapter six, verse eight through chapter nine, verse 31. And the 9 verse 31 is the last verse. It says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, which means literally built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Section 3 goes from the next verse where Peter travels into Herod's jurisdiction and it goes all throughout Syria. Last verse in that section is chapter 9 verse 32 through 12, 24 says the word of God grew and multiplied. He does not want us to miss the fact that once that kingdom starts, there is no stopping it. There is no stopping it. Okay, next section deals with Asia. That's chapter 12, verse 25 through chapter 16, verse 5. And it ends with these words. So the churches were strengthened in the... So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You know what prevailing means? It means to conquer, right? It means to win. And so the, the, the kingdom is designed not to decrease, but to increase. It's designed to defeat the world, not to be defeated by the world. And so when we're defeated, there's something wrong with us. It's not wrong with God's kingdom. God's kingdom is never defeated. And so we need to be aligning ourselves with the kingdom by looking at this kingdom manual. Okay, what's the next section there? It's the last section, right? Uh, shows Rome itself crumbling to the gospel just as Daniel prophesied. And it runs from chapter 19, verse 21 through to the end of the book. And the last verse of this whole book says, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence 
no one forbidding him. And that's kind of a sneak preview then of what's going to be happening over the next three centuries as Rome is invaded by this kingdom on every sector. They took over businesses. They took over government positions. In fact, even in Paul's time, he says that there were members of Caesar's household that were becoming Christians, people in the Praetorian Guard that were becoming Christians. And secular historians have said that by the time Constantine came on the scene and legalized Christianity, I guess he figured if you can't uh, beat him, join him, huh? By the time he legalized Christianity, more than 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christian. That's under fierce persecution. This is the invincible spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ when the people are a people of faith, when the people are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Man, what an encouraging book. This is a fantastic book. It's designed to build up our faith and to make us go out there and be foot soldiers for King Jesus. Now, it's a realistic book as well because it talks about pain and suffering and being in prison and persecuted and people don't like to think about that. It talks about satanic opposition and demon possession. So it's realistic. But when he tells us that we ought to lay our lives down for the cause of Christ, we need to realize this is a cause worth dying for. If our lives are so important, we're not willing to die for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, then our priorities are not straight, is what the book of Acts is basically going to be telling us. And so over these next uh, weeks, as we look at the book of Acts, uh, I, I want you, every man, every woman, every child in this congregation to commit yourself to living out the kingdom principles of the book of Acts and to say, Lord, I'm disposable, I'm available for whatever it is that you want but cause your kingdom to come in power and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may he receive all the glory through this church and may we receive all the joy. Amen. Father, thank you for this, your word. Father, what an encouraging, encouraging word it is that you gave us from the lips of Christ. And I pray, Father, as we we seek to live this out, meditate upon it and as we cogitate on what are the practical ramifications of being in the kingdom and how does that affect the way I uh, live in my home and uh, how I uh, run my business, how I work for my employer. I pray, Father, we would be encouraged and, Father, we would make a difference. We'd make an impact. Stir us up, O God. I pray that you would stir up faith within us. Give us a zeal for your cause. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.